0: In the year 1823, Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States, said this. He said, The day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin will be classed with the fable of the generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. Perhaps you can explain what that means to me sometime. But uh, I think what he meant by these very strange sounding words is that he believed that the virgin birth of Jesus Christ was simply a myth, a fabricated story that he believed one day would be classified with all the other myths and legends of the world. Well, Thomas Jefferson was absolutely wrong. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ is not a myth. It's absolutely true. It is still believed by those who hold to the teaching of the Bible. But as wrong as Jefferson was, what his comments tell us, folks, is that Christ's virgin birth is one of, one of those biblical doctrines that just arouses strong opposition. You see, although the story of Christmas is known all over the world, the doctrine of Christ's virgin birth, which is really the point of Christmas, has been attacked and maligned as much as any other doctrine in Scripture. And those who oppose this doctrine often do so by going to great lengths to try to explain it away. So how do they do that? Well, one approach, and there are many different approaches, but one approach is just to dismiss the biblical accounts of the virgin birth by denying the authority of Scripture. You see, if you don't accept the Bible as God's inerrant-inspired, authoritative word, then it really doesn't matter what the Bible teaches even if it clearly presents the doctrine of the virgin birth. A second approach of those who oppose this doctrine is to try to explain why the Bible includes the accounts of Christ's virgin birth if, in fact, this never happened. And the way they often explain this is by accusing the early Christians, the first Christians, of inventing the doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ decades after His death. Now, why would anyone do this? Why would they say this? After all, why would anyone come up with such a teaching if they knew decades later that it just wasn't true? Well, those who are opposed to the doctrine, the teaching of Christ's virgin birth, they have their reasons for holding to such a view. Here's how one group calling itself, calling at least its website, religioustolerance.org, Explains the rise of belief in Christ's virgin birth. This is a very popular view. Here's what they write Sometime between 70 and 90 AD, a myth of the virgin birth was invented, probably to strengthen the authority of Christ's teachings by claiming that his birth was miraculous. It was a time of great change as the Roman army had demolished Jerusalem and its temple and scattered many of the Jews throughout the Roman Empire. There, they would come in contact with many stories of virgin births of various politicians and deities from pagan religions. Now, what they are saying is that Jesus wasn't actually born of a virgin, but when the early Jewish Christians became exposed to the many virgin birth stories found in religions all over the world, that they just then incorporated a virgin birth story into Christianity in order to enhance the teachings of Jesus. That is to say that when they were in their little world, they were sort of protected from other views of other religions. Then they became exposed to other religions, so they copied the virgin birth story and put it in Christianity. Now, it is true that many ancient religions contain a virgin birth. Birth story That is true, but that doesn't mean at all that the early Christians copied the virgin birth of Christ from these pagan tales. Not at all. In fact, if you compare, and you can do some research on this, but I'll give you some thoughts this morning. If you compare the many pagan virgin birth stories with the biblical account of Christ's actual virgin birth, you'll see how different in nature they really are. There really is no comparison. The stories from ancient religions, they are just weird, they're bizarre, and sometimes they're quite crude. For example, the Babylonians, they believe that Tammuz, their god of food and vegetation, was conceived by a sunbeam. You can't make this stuff up. They're just, I'm just telling you what they believed. Buddha's mother is said to have conceived him the moment she saw a great white elephant enter her stomach. Hinduism believes that Vishnu, after being reincarnated as a fish, a tortoise, a boar, and a lion, entered the womb of Devaki and was born as her son Krishna. Even Alexander the Great was believed by some to have been virgin-born by Zeus using a snake to impregnate his mother Olympias. So even though these stories smack of silliness and, and fantasy... We do have to admit that the story of a virgin birth in a religious context is not unique to Christianity. However, that doesn't mean that the early Christians took their belief in Christ's miraculous conception from them. So a valid question for us to ask at this point is, why then do so many ancient religions have virgin birth stories like these? Well, the explanation is rather simple. In anticipation of the virgin birth of Christ, Satan, the deceiver, the liar, Satan created these fanciful ancient myths through false religions to make the birth of Christ appear to be legendary and rather common. In other words, these stories exist in order to discredit the precious truth of Christ's birth by associating it With legends of pregnancies that result from such absurdities as sunbeams and elephants and snakes. How ludicrous. How ridiculous. The biblical story of Christ's conception and birth doesn't remotely resemble the virgin birth theories of pagan religions. Those theories are often presented with immoral and repulsive characters Gods who are inflamed by lust that led to rapes and adulteries. Here's how one Bible teacher put it. After explaining the immorality associated with one of these pagan virgin tales, he wrote this. He said, Can anyone in his right mind believe that the clean and beautiful story of Christ's virgin birth was derived from or even suggested by anything as filthy as this silly tale? Now, What we've seen so far then is that inspired by Satan, there are many who go to great lengths to reject Christ's virgin birth. But why? Why put so much effort into denying this one doctrine taught in Scripture? Listen closely. The reason why the virgin birth is always under fierce attack is because the virgin birth Of Jesus Christ is one of the foundational doctrines of Christianity. It is an essential truth of the faith. It is a non-negotiable truth. We don't budge on this. We don't give an inch on this. You see without the virgin birth there is no Christianity. There is no Christmas. There is no glorious truth about Christ coming to save us from our sins. Without the virgin birth the cross of Jesus Christ is absolutely meaningless and that's because the virgin birth of christ establishes the fact the truth that jesus is both human and divine that he's the eternal infinite god who became man so he could eternally and infinitely atone for the sins of his people if you remove the supernatural conception and birth by a virgin then you have destroyed the message of the gospel. And that's why this precious doctrine has been so attacked and so maligned over the years. Because ultimately, the source, as I said, of all these attacks, all these absurd theories, is the devil, is Satan, the father of all lies. His goal is to undermine, to demean, and to discredit the truth of the gospel. And those who hate Christ... Those who hate the truth of his deity, they're drawn. They love these theories. They're drawn to these theories in order to try to justify and support their unbelief and rejection of him. It makes them feel good about their unbelief. It gives them in their own mind some justification for rejecting Christ. And what's so fascinating about all this unbelief is that some of the most ardent critics of the virgin birth are actually unsaved religious leaders. that shouldn't really surprise us because Satan so often propagates error through false teaching and false teachers. This was true in our Lord's day and it is true today. The Bible says that the devil disguises himself as an angel of light. And that's why the overwhelming majority of the Jewish religious leaders at the time of Jesus were so opposed to him. For example, we read in John chapter 5 verse 18... Now these men, these religious authorities, were so hostile to Christ's claim that he was God, so hostile they tried to kill him for it. In John 5.18 we read, For this cause, therefore, the Jews... And when, and when John says Jews, he's not talking about the common man on the street, he's talking about the Jewish religious leaders. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath. Let me stop there and say he never broke the Sabbath. He broke their oral traditions of the Sabbath. Not biblically. He never broke the Sabbath. But it was their perceived breaking of the Sabbath. But also calling God his own father. Making himself equal with God. They wanted to kill him because he made himself equal with God. His enemies understood what he was claiming. Again in John chapter 10 verses 31 through 33. We read this. The Jews, again meaning the Jewish religious leaders, picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we don't stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself out to be God. They got it. They understood it. They didn't believe it, but they understood what he was claiming. In addition to these protests against his claims of deity, there were certainly wicked Accusations and insinuations leveled by the Jewish authorities of his day Against the legitimacy of his birth John 8 41 in that verse They said to Jesus and then he responded You are doing the deeds of your father They said to him we were not born of fornication We have one father God It appears that these people were charging Jesus with being the illegitimate son of Mary They knew the story that Joseph was not his biological father and so they were accusing him of being the product of a union between Mary and a man who was not her husband, perhaps a Roman soldier stationed in the Galilee area or maybe even a neighbor. Now folks, these are just some of the major attacks that Jesus was forced to endure during his earthly ministry. And this targeted attack against the legitimacy of his virgin birth just has not gone away even to this day. It still is a very popular view held by some people today, especially religious leaders who try to explain away Christ's miraculous birth and his deity. In fact, a few years ago, a poll was taken of over 7,000 ministers from various liberal Protestant denominations about their religious beliefs. And the results of this poll reveal, it's just astounding, that 34% of American baptists that's a denomination, American Baptist clergy, 44% of Episcopalian clergy, 49% of USA Presbyterian clergy, and 60% of Methodist ministers reject the doctrine of Christ's virgin birth. Just to give you a sampling of their blatant unbelief, here's a quote from a man by the name of John Shelby Spung, who for many years was the Episcopal Bishop of Newark, New Jersey. He died only this last year. He said these words concerning the virgin birth of Christ. In time, the virgin birth account will join Adam and Eve and the story of the cosmic ascension is clearly recognized mythological elements in our faith tradition whose purpose was not to describe a literal event but to capture the transcendent dimension of God in the earthbound words and concepts of first century human beings. Again, um, mumbo-jumbo and hard to understand, but I don't know exactly what he's talking about. However, you get the gist of it, that he did not believe that the virgin birth of Jesus Christ should be taken literally. Now, sadly, sadly, since he has died, he now knows the truth, but it's too late for him. So we live in a world where many people, even prominent religious leaders, vehemently, vehemently, opposed the virgin birth of Christ. They opposed it in the days of our Lord's earthly sojourn and they continue to oppose it today. Now, it is in light of the attacks that were taking place in his own day that the gospel writer, the apostle Matthew includes the story of Mary's conception and Christ's birth in his gospel account the gospel of Matthew. Not only to present it as truth but also note this, to defend it against its critics and those who would distort and misrepresent it. You see, there's a significant apologetic tone. What does that mean? It means a tone of defense in Matthew's gospel. As Matthew seeks to preserve the great truths about the life and ministry of Christ, and the reason for this is because Matthew's overall purpose, his overall message, his overall theme of his gospel account is to present Jesus as Israel's king and Messiah to the Jewish people of his day. And that's why Matthew is the only gospel writer who opens his book with Christ's genealogy. No other gospel writer does that. Matthew does. Why? Because Christ's family tree establishes the fact that Jesus is the legitimate heir to David's throne. In other words, Jesus has the royal credentials to be the king he is a son of David. And if you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, you'll see a very important statement in the genealogy of Jesus. Jacob, we read, was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. Now, interestingly, all of the men listed in Christ's genealogy, when you have time, you can check it on your own, all the, the men listed there, up to this point, are listed as the father of, of their son so that we read for example so and so is the father of so and so but that's not the way that Matthew words verse 16 he deviates from that the pattern he says that Joseph was the husband of Mary rather than the father of Jesus and by wording it this way Matthew is implying that Jesus was born of a virgin and is therefore deity however in the next section Of this opening chapter of the gospel of Matthew. Our study this morning. The verses I read to you a few minutes ago. Verses 18 through 25. Matthew more than implies this. He explicitly states this as fact. And he does it by clearly presenting the story of the supernatural conception and birth of the Messiah. This is the Christmas story according to Matthew. And he tells it in a way that not only conveys it as truth, but also defends it against its critics. He accomplishes these two goals, both presenting and defending the virgin birth of Christ by giving us four reasons for believing in the virgin birth of Jesus. So, in light of all the opposition to the virgin birth, why should you and I believe it? Why is it important to believe it? Well, Matthew tells us why we should believe it and why it's so important to believe. See, not only do these verses about the virgin birth, not only should they strengthen and affirm your faith, but they also should define for you what you actually believe, what exactly the Bible teaches about Christ and his birth. And in doing so, these verses help us to know how to respond to those who challenge us, to those who question the truth about Christianity and the gospel. So they help to define our faith, They also help to defend our faith. So the first reason that Matthew gives for believing in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, if you're taking notes, and I always encourage you to do that, you should write this down. The first reason is the miracle of Mary's pregnancy. The miracle of Mary's pregnancy. Verse 18, we read this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now having already listed Christ's earthly family background in his genealogy, Matthew now tells us how the Messiah actually came into the world. And he does this by immediately telling us that his conception was miraculous, and it was supernatural, and it was unlike any other conception ever. Because Mary, his mother, was pregnant with him, even though she and her husband Joseph had never had physical relations. In other words, she was still a virgin, and yet she was with a child in her womb. Now, who were Mary and Joseph? Some of you, I'm sure, know about this. Others, this might be new to you. Well, the Bible really gives us very little information about Mary and Joseph. We know that Mary was a young Jewish girl. She was a descendant of King David. Very likely she grew up in the village of Nazareth. According to John chapter 19 verse 25, she had a sister, might surprise you to know this, a sister also named Mary. It sounds strange to us, but it was not an uncommon practice in those days to name several children with the same first name. We also know that she had a relative, probably a cousin of hers by the name of Elizabeth, who was to become the mother of John the Baptist. Now, from Luke's account of the angel Gabriel announcing to Mary that she was chosen to be the mother of the Messiah, we get a very positive picture of Mary. And By the way, her name would not have been known as Mary in those days. It would have been Miriam. That would have been the English translation of her Hebrew name. So, closer to call her Miriam than Mary. But we'll call her Mary. We get a very positive picture of Mary as a godly young woman who believed the word of God and was in submission to it. Because in response to what Gabriel told her, she said, May it be done to me according to your word. That is her submission. We also see in her response to all of this, her deep humility, her reverence, her worship as she exalts the Lord in what is commonly known as the Magnificate. Mary magnifies the Lord. Mary's Magnificate. Now concerning Joseph, we know even less about him than we do about Mary. We know that he was a carpenter. In terms of character, we're told in Matthew 1.19 that he was a righteous man. Meaning what? Meaning that he was a genuine believer who wanted to honor God with his obedience to the word of God we assume that Joseph died before Jesus even began his ministry at about age 30 because there is no mention of Joseph during these years and while on the cross you'll recall Jesus turned to the apostle John and requested that he take care of his mother Mary that would seem to indicate that Joseph wasn't around to take care of her. But even though we don't know a great deal about Mary or Joseph, what we do know about them leads us to conclude that they were both sincere believers with hearts that were devoted to God. And I might add, they were not very old when they were married. You see, in those days, Jewish girls were often married as young as, yes, 12 or 13. Boys were usually a little older than that. But regardless of their youthful age and their inexperience, God chose them as the special couple that Jesus would be born to and raised by. And the way that Matthew explains this is by informing us that prior to living together and engaging in physical intimacy, Mary and Joseph, he says, were betrothed to each other. Now, betrothed should not be confused with our modern-day system and custom of engagement. Betrothal in ancient Israel was more than an engagement it was considered note this a legally binding marriage that required divorce if it was to be broken it was not engagement and there were two stages in the betrothal period sometimes called the espousal period first the parents of the bride and groom agreed on this marriage in other words it was an arranged marriage and then a contract was drawn up involving a price that was to be paid to the bride's father As a dowry or a bride price, this was done to help offset the expenses of the wedding. And I say, not a bad custom for fathers with daughters. Not a bad custom at all. Now, once this price was paid, the contract was then sealed. And the couple was considered legally married to each other. In fact, they were called husband and wife. But at that point, they did not live together as husband and wife. You see, as an officially betrothed couple, they then entered into a second stage of this arrangement, which involved living separately with their respective parents for about a year. And the purpose of the separation was that it served as a time of testing for the moral purity of the bride. Now, why there was no morality-type test for the groom, I just don't know. But if the bride was found during the betrothal time to be pregnant, then the marriage could be legally broken by divorce. However, if after a year, she proved to be morally pure, morally faithful, then the husband would go to the house of his bride's parents, and in a grand procession, he would lead his bride back to his home, consummate their marriage, and they would begin to live as husband and wife. Now, Matthew tells us, in verse 18 that at some point during the second stage of the betrothal period this one year waiting period that Joseph became aware of Mary's pregnancy but what Joseph didn't understand was that Mary had never been with another man Matthew very simply states at the end note of verse 18 that she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit Now, this is a tremendously important statement because without going into any details, Matthew reveals that Christ's conception was the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. No man had been involved. In other words, Mary kept her virginity and yet she became pregnant by the miraculous work of God, the Holy Spirit. Though Matthew just mentions this as a fact, Luke In his gospel account, he expands on this a little bit. We read, for example, in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. To a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, Now note this, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel then said, departed from her. Now, obviously, the conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit is a great mystery that none of us understands. And one, we're just not even capable of fully grasping this. However, by using the word overshadow, that's the word that the Spirit of God inspired Luke to use. The word overshadow as the Most High will overshadow you. Luke is conveying that in some unique way God's presence came upon Mary so that she became impregnated with the son of God see this Greek word that's translated overshadowed is the very same word the exact same Greek word used to describe God's presence at Christ's transfiguration where we read a bright cloud overshadowed them they were on a high mountain remember Moses and Elijah show up and the cloud overshadowed them as God's presence descended upon Christ and a few of his disciples and that's exactly what happened to Mary God's presence descended upon her not in a sexual way what is described here is not some sexual mating with divinity as as is characteristic in all pagan religions with crude and lustful virgin myths but rather his presence miraculously brought about the physical conception of Jesus so that Mary was pregnant while still being a virgin it is a mystery it is something that we cannot understand now folks the point though of matthew's rather reserved way of stating that mary was pregnant by the work of the holy spirit is to tell us that this was a miracle of god and in doing it this way god chose to change to change the course of the laws of nature the very laws that he established He changed them. Now you don't need to understand how God did this, but as the angel Gabriel told Mary, you just need to believe that nothing is impossible with God. See, here's the heart of the matter. Those who reject the virgin conception and then the birth of Christ, they reject the fact that God is sovereign and all-powerful. That's really the bottom line. So that he can do anything he chooses to do. Therefore, the real issue, the bottom line issue, it isn't the virgin birth. The issue is who is God? Who is God? To reject the miracle is to reject that God is God. That's the issue. And therefore, being God, he can do whatever he chooses to do without having to explain to us how he does it and without any limitations. He's God. Now in the case of Mary God sovereignly chose to impregnate her by supernaturally overshadowing her without using seed from a man and listen Mary is the only woman in all of history who had a seed within her that did not come from a man in this way Jesus was both the eternal God as well as man and therefore he could make a substitutionary sacrifice of eternal value for the sins of his people However, Joseph, Mary's betrothed husband, at this point he knows nothing about the supernatural work of God, this overshadowing of the, the Most High that impregnated Mary. Apparently Mary never told him about the angel's announcement and God's special visitation upon her. It's not that Mary tried to conceal this from Joseph. Remember, as Luke tells us, for the past three months she's been away. She's been with her relative Elizabeth, who was pregnant at that time with John the Baptist. But now Mary has returned to Nazareth, and it becomes known to others, including Joseph, that she's pregnant. So imagine the heartache of this poor man. Imagine the heartache of poor Joseph. He knows that he didn't make her pregnant, and he reacts the way any of us would have. He assumes the worst, that she's been unfaithful to him, and so he decides He's going to end this relationship and divorce Mary. And it's at this part of the unfolding drama of Christ's birth that we see a second reason that Matthew gives for believing in the virgin birth of Jesus. The first reason is the miracle of Mary's pregnancy. But now the second reason is the message of the angel to Joseph. Verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her plan to send her away secretly. Now, when Joseph found out about Mary being pregnant, he had a tough decision to make. Since he was a righteous man, he believed then that to continue with this marriage would be to condone, to approve of Mary's assumed adultery and the breaking of her marriage vow. So he knew that he couldn't, in clear conscience, continue with this marriage. So he decides to divorce her. But Joseph we read, was also a very kind-hearted, compassionate man. He was a man of mercy, and therefore he did not want to disgrace Mary with a public divorce that would bring shame and dishonor upon her in the Jewish community, and possibly even death, though it was seldom practiced in those days. So out of concern for Mary's reputation, Joseph decides that he's gonna do something that is permitted by the Mosaic law. He would divorce her quietly, by handing her a bill of divorcement in the presence of two or three witnesses, sort of like a settlement that's out of court. But before he could carry out this plan, God intervened by sending an angel to give him a message in a dream while he slept. And so we read in verse 20. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, dreams were often used during Old Testament times before the writing of the New Testament to communicate God's revelation. And this particular dream came from God, but it came through an angel in order to explain to Joseph the information that had already been given by the angel to Mary. Mary. That the child within her was the product of the Holy Spirit and not human sexuality. In fact, the angel refers to Joseph, note this, he calls him the son of David. Why? Why call him the son of David? In order to remind him that he's in David's messianic line and therefore instead of divorcing Mary, he should complete the marriage process because she is bearing David's ultimate son, the Messiah, who has been miraculously placed in her womb by God himself. Now, why do you suppose Matthew recorded these angelic words to Joseph? Why? Well, for the basic reason that Matthew wants us, his readers, to hear the clear testimony of God through an angel that Jesus was born of a virgin. So, why do we believe, folks, in the virgin birth of Christ? We believe it because God states it in his own word. We believe it because the scripture declares it so clearly. You realize that all the Bible writers, all of them, are totally consistent and they are in agreement in their teaching about Christ's virgin birth. All of them. Joseph is never called, never called in the Bible, the father of Jesus. Not by a Bible writer. Mary never mentions Joseph in connection with Jesus' birth. No Bible writer ever states that Joseph had anything to do with the conception of Jesus. In fact, the Apostle Paul very plainly states this in Galatians 4, 4. He said, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son born of a woman. Paul is simply affirming the great truth of Christ's virgin birth. A human mother but not a human father. Born of a woman. Not a woman and a man. Just a woman. And that's what the angel told Joseph in his dream. But that wasn't all the angel told Joseph. He actually went on to give some information about this child who was to be born through Mary. And Matthew uses that information to give us now a third reason why we should believe in the virgin birth of Messiah. The first reason is the miracle of Mary's pregnancy. The second reason is the message of the angel. Given to Joseph. And now a third reason. It is the ministry of Jesus. Notice verse 21. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And what we read here is that the angel explains that the child who is inside of Mary. Is a son. That Joseph is to name Jesus. And the reason. For naming him Jesus is because his primary ministry, the son's primary ministry, will be to save his people from their sins. You see, the name Jesus means the Lord saves or Jehovah saves. It originally comes from the Hebrew language and it is the modern day equivalent of the name Joshua. And although in the first century there were many Jewish boys with the name Joshua or Jesus or it really would have been pronounced back then, Yeshua, Only the child developing within Mary's womb would live up to his name by saving his people from their sins. Now listen closely. What the angel is really telling Joseph is that Jesus is going to be the savior of his people. And what he will save them from isn't Roman oppression or any kind of political domination or tyranny he is going to save them from their sins. And here's the point. The reason that Jesus Christ can save us from our sin is because He is born of a virgin, meaning that He is both the eternal God as well as human man. You see, the virgin birth of Christ, it isn't a minor theological issue. It is an essential doctrine of Christianity because it means that Jesus being God and fully human, he is the only one qualified to pay the ransom, the redemption for our sins. And the reason for this is because being God, his sacrifice is infinite, eternal in nature. And therefore he can make an infinite, eternal atonement for his people. It never ends. After a million years, God isn't kicking you out of glory saying that's it. Christ's atonement was only up to this point. It is infinite forever. And being human, he was capable of a real death as our substitute sin bearer because God as spirit could not die. God as man could. And he did. So why do we believe in the virgin birth? Because of the miracle of Mary's pregnancy. Because of the message of the angel to Joseph. Because of the ministry of Jesus to save his people. There's a fourth and final reason that Matthew gives for believing in the virgin birth of Messiah. It's because of the messianic prophecy of scripture. Verses 22 through 23. Now all of this, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which translated means God with us. Now with these words, the Apostle Matthew explains that the virgin birth of Jesus is the fulfillment of messianic prophecy made long ago in the Old Testament. About 700 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah predicted that a virgin would bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Because that's exactly what this son would be. He would be God living as a man amongst his people. Now, this doesn't mean that Emmanuel will be Christ's first name, but rather it would be his description. He would be God who would be born as human flesh in order to dwell, or if you like, to tabernacle, to tent among us. Now, over the years, there's been much debate among scholars concerning the Old Testament Hebrew word that is translated "virgin." And the debate centers around whether this word refers to a virgin or to simply a young woman of marriageable age. Well, there's really no question that this word was used in the Old Testament to refer to young women who were virgins. And that's exactly how Matthew understood the prophet Isaiah to be using this word in his prophecy about the birth of Messiah. And I say that because when Matthew wrote about the fulfillment of this prophecy, and he wrote in Greek, he used a Greek word that almost always means virgin. That's what he meant. That's what the Spirit of God meant, a virgin. Now, cutting through all the linguistic issues surrounding this word virgin, the point that Matthew is making is that the virgin birth of Christ wasn't something that should have caught the Jewish people off guard. Shouldn't have caught them by surprise because Isaiah predicted it would happen this way. 700 years earlier. They've had this prophecy for 700 years. Listen. This virgin birth of our Savior. It was not invented by Matthew. It wasn't invented by the early church. It wasn't invented by the first Jewish Christians. Who wanted to twist the Bible to enhance the teaching of Jesus. And make it look more authoritative. No. God promised long ago that he would dwell with his people. As he came to live among them as a man. And that's exactly what happened. The Apostle John puts it so wonderfully when he tells us that the word who is God became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. You see, the Jewish people of Matthew's day, they should have received this truth. They should have known it. They should have received it just as you and I should receive it because it was predicted by God as a messianic prophecy and it was fulfilled clearly, literally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. One man who did become convinced of a virgin conceiving and bearing a son was Joseph, Mary's husband. Verses 24 and 25 say, and Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So, upon Waking up from his sleep, Joseph obeyed the angel and he proceeded to take Mary as his wife. He didn't divorce her. He took her as his wife, although he did not, we read, have physical relations with her until after she gave birth to Jesus. See, contrary to what some claim, Mary did not remain a perpetual virgin the rest of her life, since the New Testament gives numerous references to the half-brothers and sisters of Jesus. Now, folks... The Apostle Matthew has not only presented the glorious truth of Christ's supernatural conception and birth, but he has, given you, he has given you four reasons to believe it, to have confidence in it, to be sure of it, even as others around you may be attacking it. Number one, it is a miracle. So if you believe in the God of the Bible, then you should have no problem whatsoever believing he does miracles like the miracle of conception. Remember, with God, as the angel said, nothing is impossible. Number two, the virgin birth of Christ is clearly taught in the scriptures. God said it through an angel, he said it through the gospel writers, and he said it through the apostle Paul. If you believe the Bible is the word of God, then you must believe in the virgin birth because it is in the Bible taught very clearly. Number three, the virgin birth is the foundation of our faith. Because Christ's primary ministry is that of being our savior from sin. And he had to be virgin-born deity or else he could never save us from our sin. And number four, the virgin birth is the fulfillment of messianic prophecy given over 700 years prior to the first coming. It is not the recent invention of men. Now the most important question that you have to address is this. Do I personally know? this virgin-born Savior? Do I know Him? Do I have a relationship with Him? Is He my personal Savior? Well, He can be. He can be your Savior from sin if you'll just turn from your sin and turn to Christ and trust Him Trust his death on the cross as the sole basis for your salvation. Not Christ and church. Not Christ and baptism. Not Christ and confession. Not Christ and good deeds. It is Christ alone or it is not Christ at all. So I urge you, the best thing that could ever happen to you today, Christmas Day, is to take Christ as your Savior. Trust him. I urge you to do that. Let's pray together. Father, we indeed are so thankful that you included this passage of Scripture in your word. It is so clear. It is so meaningful. And Lord, we don't have to understand how you did this, but we do need to believe it. And we do believe it because with you nothing is impossible. I thank you, Lord, for this miracle, this supernatural work that you did in Mary's body to bring about the birth of Messiah. And I pray for any here who may not know the Messiah, who may not know Jesus as their own personal Savior, that your word today would be used to bring them to salvation, that it is the way by which they come to faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And I pray, Lord, for those of us who know you, I pray these truths would strengthen our faith, would help us to believe these truths deeper and be more convinced than ever before, and help us, Lord, when the time comes to give an answer to those who challenge our faith and question it, to pull from our minds that which the Holy Spirit has put there from this morning of these truths that you would bring forth to answer accusations. Lord, we thank you for the truth. We thank you for Christ. We pray that you'll give us all a very special, wonderful Christmas Day. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.